KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, since the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank last week, we need to understand how and why so-called medium-sized banks have been allowed to avoid strict supervision from federal banking authorities. John Nichols will explain that, and we'll have an update from John about the most important election before the 2024 presidential race. That's the Wisconsin Supreme Court election coming up on April 4th. It could switch the court from conservative to liberal control, legalizing abortion in Wisconsin, and potentially ending the gerrymandering there, which could give Democrats two more seats in the House. It could also assure that Wisconsin's vote will be counted fairly and its electoral college vote will be recorded appropriately. Also, do masks work to help stop the spread of COVID? A New York Times columnist recently said that they don't, and he cited an authoritative review of research as his source. But it turns out he was wrong about that study. Greg Gonsalves of the Yale School of Public Health will explain the research that has established that masks do work to reduce the spread of COVID. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with failing banks. In 2018, Congress reduced regulations for banks that were not the biggest. They raised the threshold for the strictest level of regulation from $50 billion in bank assets to $250 billion in bank assets. And it wasn't just Republicans who voted in favor of that. 33 House Democrats and 17 Democratic senators joined virtually all the Republicans in voting in favor of that bill. Of course, we expect Republicans to oppose regulation of banks and everything else. So let's talk about those 33 House Democrats and 17 Democratic senators. Who were they? Well, let's begin by noting that all of the uh, Democratic representatives in the vicinity of Silicon Valley, uh, from Ro Khanna to Nancy Pelosi, did not vote to essentially lift the regulations on those banks, nor did California's two Democratic senators. And and let us just underline here, Silicon Valley Bank was one of the banks that had lobbied for this change and to which this change applied. Absolutely, yes. The CEO of of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, was a uh, energetic and loud lobbyist to get uh, that kind of regulation lifted. But it was, you know, the kind of pro-corporate Democrats who, uh, who, who went for this. The, uh, uh, in the Senate, the Mark Warner, in, uh, you, know, you know, who does not really have an excuse of coming from a, uh, a swing state. I mean, but for one aberration, Virginia has been voting solidly Democratic in the House. Again, the, the, the right wing of the Democrats like Josh Gottheimer from northern New Jersey. Can we mention one other in the Senate, Joe Manchin? Joe Manchin, yes. It's sort of, you know, rounding up the usual suspects uh, who are, you know, periodically acclaimed for being more bipartisan. Of course, the issue is, on what kind of issue are you more bipartisan? Also, a few inner city representatives who were, I suspect, really heavily lobbied 
by, you know, local banks and senators and members of Congress from states that are more or less, uh, you know, territories governed by banks, Delaware in particular. And are there any signs that Democrats who supported the Republican banking bill are being challenged in primaries in 2024? In short, yes. Uh, One of the Democratic House members who voted for this bill was later that year elected to the Senate. Guess who? It was Kristen Sinema from Arizona. And the rather progressive House Democrat who has announced he's running for that Senate seat that she currently uh, holds, Ruben Gallego, who has a really kind of stellar record uh, in the House, is challenging her in, in particular for that, that that was a wrong vote and there should be consequences for that level of error. I might add, if you remember the gleeful way that Kristen Sinema voted against raising the minimum wage yeah. uh, in the Senate, thereby killing that prospect. So not willing to help those folks, but all in favor of uh, exempting the uh, really large, but technically then mid-sized banks from the kind of prudential uh, oversight that they needed. So next topic the changes in Israel, and the changes among congressional Democrats. The far-right transformation of Israel's government proceeds this week. Uh, Their goal is to remove the Supreme Court as a check on the Knesset, which now is controlled by settlers and the the ultra-Orthodox, who really want to annex the West Bank. This has provoked the biggest ever protest demonstrations in Israel by Jews, And it's also led many members of Congress, finally, to take a stand challenging America's unquestioning financial and military support for Israel. There's two groups of members of Congress who have organized statements about this in the last week or two. First, 92 House members signed a letter to Biden urging him to, quote, use all diplomatic tools available to prevent Israel's current government from further damaging the nation's democratic institutions and undermining the potential for two states, for two peoples, close quote. 92 House members, my question for you is, who signed that letter and who didn't? The letter was initiated by three liberal stalwarts in the House, primarily Rosa DeLauro from New Haven, also uh, Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, not merely the progressives signed it. Um, there were a few more Democrats who uh, are more identified with the center of the party, like uh, two from Massachusetts, Stephen Lynch and Seth Moulton. Moulton had actually once run against Nancy Pelosi for speaker in the Democratic caucus because she was ostensibly too liberal. Hmm. So it, it had significant support. Two groups of Democrats prominent in the House did not sign the letter. The first was the House leadership, Hakeem Jeffries uh, and so on elected leaders of the Democratic Caucus. And the second were members of the squad. So let me, let me parse those two exceptions. I think the leaders were probably concerned about two things. First of all, the letter was kind of an implicit prod to President Biden, and they didn't want to be seen to be prodding. And secondly, uh, I think they were fearful that the Israel Can Do No Wrong uh, campaign fundraising apparatus, known as APAC, if they signed on, would, would give all its money in the next congressional election to uh, House Republican candidates. Uh, so uh, that was a factor there. 
As for the squad, well, you know, the letter said Israel has historically uh, been a liberal democracy uh, associated with justice, and we really don't like to see it degraded the way it's being degraded. And as defenders of uh, Palestinian rights uh, and uh, the rights of Israeli Arabs, I think the squad was sort of fine with the conclusion, but not with the premise. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and so their names are not on that uh, letter either. Yeah, either. they have long argued that Israel has never been a democratic state based on justice and equality because, first of all, of the expulsion of Palestinians at the founding of Israel in 1948, and second, the law of return, which allows all Jews to come to Israel and become citizens, but no Palestinians to return to their homes in Israel. And, and in an citizens. odd way, the right-wing ultra-Orthodox presence in the Netanyahu government has raised concerns about the right of return among uh, reform and conservative Jews yes. in the diaspora. And so the uh, the organization of reform Jews, which uh, represents two million American Jews, has uh, you know complained to Israel that under the ultra-Orthodox uh, criteria for right of return, um, you know, even non-orthodox Jews can't return. So it's, it's you know, this, this particular issue is, is raising uh, concerns as the Israeli government becomes more particularistic in its, uh, in its preferences. And that takes us to the second letter. This letter was signed by 16 of the 22 Jewish Democrats in the House. Who was behind the drafting of this letter and how is the Jewish letter different from the broader house letter? A Manishtana question for, <laughs> uh, for Jews. How is this letter different from all, from other, all other letters? Well, to begin, this letter is uh, directed not to President Biden, but to Bibi Netanyahu and also uh, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, and the minority leader in the Knesset, Yair Lapid. And so it's asking them to stop what I, you know, both the erosion of judicial independence, what level of Jewish democracy, what level of democracy there is, and uh, also raising that concern I just articulated about the ultra-Orthodox criteria really, you know, discriminating against most Jews in the diaspora. So 16 of the 22 signed it. Two right-wingers, Josh Gottheimer and a guy who represents a district in Florida, where most of the Jews are retirees who remember the Israel of 1948, they wrote a letter sort of taking the APAC position, which is it's none of Congress's business to uh, interfere in Israel's doings, notwithstanding that Israel has been the leading recipient of American foreign aid virtually since it was founded. And one of those, by the way, was Josh Gottheimer, whom I listed as one of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, miscreants in the uh, banking uh, deregulation issues. So I just want to give a nice little shout out to him. So 16 signed, two wrote an opposition statement, and four were just AWOL. Now, let me talk about one of those four. Very significant, I think. Brad Sherman of Los Angeles. This is this guy has spoken at every APAC conference. He is kind of the definitive pro-Israel congressman. And the fact that he did not sign the APAC letter seems potentially significant to me. He was inter interviewed by Haaretz, the Israeli uh, liberal newspaper, about this. And he said his concern was that the Netanyahu government 
is eroding support for Israel in Congress, which is not quite the same as saying uh, they want to annex the West Bank and I'm against that, but it is a step away from APAC from a person who has been the most loyal APAC member for the last decade. Well, I have heard that last Friday there was a meeting between the Jewish House Democrats, all of them, and uh, a, a representative of the Israeli government, uh, where they were all, even the ones who you know, signed the APAC letter, privately critical of, of what the Netanyahu government was doing and said it was a disaster, pretty much saying what Brad Sherman was quoted as saying. But then there was another non-signatory to both of those letters who was currently running for uh, the seat that Dianne Feinstein is giving up in 2024, that being Adam Schiff, who again, I'm sure is privately quite critical of this, but he's running against, uh, there are two, can- uh, two other announced candidates, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. Both of them, they're not, they, they're not Jewish, so they didn't have anything to do with the Jewish letter, but both of them were among the 92 who signed the letter to President Biden. Adam Schiff wasn't on either, though his office said to, sent me a statement saying he's been critical of the, uh, the government. And what I detect from this is in the last set of congressional elections last uh, November and in the Democratic primaries preceding them, an organization called the Democratic Majority for Israel, which is really sort of the campaign arm of APAC people, donated tons of money against the Democratic candidates, included, including longstanding members of Congress who had criticized Israel uh, for its uh, palace, policy toward the Palestinians historically, and managed to defeat a number of them, in particular Andy Levin in Michigan, who is uh, actually the president of his synagogue. You can hardly say this guy is out of the mainstream of anything. But I mean, I think as Democrats, the House leadership, Adam Schiff, even Katie Porter, which I'll get to in a moment, look to the specter of what happened to Andy Levin, they're a little bit afraid. They're a little bit afraid of of APAC money. Uh, when, when I said Katie Porter, yeah, let me just, let me just emphasize here. Katie Porter not only signed the letter; she went on the J Street trip to Israel. J Street, the liberal but anti-Netanyahu organization of American Jews, kind of the leaders of the the Jewish liberals in America right now. Katie Porter went on their congressional trip uh, a week or two ago, uh, which is a pretty bold step for uh, uh, her in her campaign against Adam Schiff, seems to me. Yeah, it is. And uh, this was the largest congressional delegation J Street had ever been able to assemble for one of its Israeli and, you know, West Bank trips. There were 15 members of Congress, which greatly displeased APAC, I'm sure. And, And so to sort of counteract this, Uh, Katie Porter said at at least she met with some APAC representatives before the trip. And after the trip, she gushed about what an intelligent spokesperson Netanyahu was in their discourse with him. She didn't say she liked any of ideas, but whatever harm diminishing effect a statement about, well, he's very bright. Uh, you know, <laughs> so she said that. It's, it, it's not politically objectionable to, uh, uh, to anyone, I think, on the left, but uh, it just is a further emphasis of the fear that massive APAC spending uh, is, is causing among uh, many Democrats. And let me just point to the one other 
Jewish member of the House from Southern California, Mike Levin from Coastal San Diego. He signed the letter of the 92 House liberals uh, against uh, the Netanyahu changes. That's a gutsy move for him. It is, because he does not represent a, a really solidly democratic district. But he's managed. he managed to survive in 2022, and I suspect he'll survive in 2024, but it's still gutsy. Now, there's one other massive change, which I haven't noted before, in diaspora uh, sentiment vis-a-vis uh, Netanyahu, uh, which should be noted, which is that Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who people like me have just you know, reviled for years because he was convinced that the spread of capitalism into China and Russia and everything was just great. And uh, anyone who opposed uh, those trade agreements was a troglodyte. And if there was a McDonald's in a, in a major city in, uh, in Beijing or Moscow, that meant there would never be, you know, it would inherently democratize them. He was wrong, wrong, wrong. He has been great in the last six, eight weeks, writing about the uh, sheer idiocy and malignancy of the Netanyahu government. Just great. Actually, the best columnist there is on it, precisely because, A, he's really well-versed in these matters, um, and B, no one can accuse him of being, you should pardon the expression, woke. Uh, so um, so I know, would just have one one qualification of that. Tom Friedman has been rightly obsessed with the the threats to democracy for Israeli Jews. He hasn't really said a word about Palestinians, especially the plans uh, to annex the West Bank. That is true. But what he has said is about the best version of that argument, given, you know, his prominence in the Jewish American ecosystem however you choose to spell echo and that given his prominence, it it really matters that he's doing what he's doing. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. Today's news comes from Michigan, where the state is changing its laws regarding the rights of workers organizing unions. Harold, this is your baby. Yes. Well, uh, last week, the Michigan uh, lower house voted to repeal or essentially undo two measures that were passed a decade ago when the legislature and the governor were all Republican. One of those measures established Michigan, historically, you know, ground zero for America's most powerful unions, those being the United Auto Workers and the Teamsters. The Republicans put through a right to work law and they uh, removed the requirement that construction workers on publicly funded projects needed to be paid prevailing wages. Well, the Democrats swept the uh, elections this past November in Michigan, getting control of both houses of the legislature and re-electing the Democratic governor there, uh, Gretchen Whitman. Last week, the House uh, reinstored prevailing wages and struck down the right to work bill. And just on Wednesday, just of this week, the day that we're speaking, uh, the Senate uh, voted to do the same. Now, the two bills have slight differences that have to be ironed out. They will be ironed out. And Gretchen Whitmer uh, ran on uh, signing those bills when uh, they come before her. So Michigan is reverting back to what had been the norm 
in uh, the industrial Midwest. But then when the Republicans won uh, control in 2010 in Wisconsin and Michigan and uh, more in Ohio and, and uh, Indiana than before, all those states, not yet Ohio, all those states moved to this, uh, what had been a Southern anti-labor, anti-worker norm. Now in Michigan, it's beginning to go back, go back to what historically was the Northern norm, which has always had a, a greater respect for paid labor than the Southern for historic reasons we need not get into. Paid labor, that's an interesting concept when we come to the history of the American South. It is, it is. You know, in five of the six states that have never adopted a minimum wage law of their own are Georgia, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Uh, the, the six is somewhere out in the Mountain West. Well, one more thing before uh, we close here, returning to the bank failures, we say it was the weakening of regulation that caused this banking crisis, but leading Republicans have had a different explanation. Ron DeSantis told Fox News about Silicon Valley Bank, quote, this bank, they're so concerned with DEI and all kinds of stuff. I think that really diverted them from focusing on their core mission, close quote, Ron DeSantis. The Wall Street Journal had a columnist who wondered if, quote, the company may have been distracted by diversity demands, close quote. And the New York Post headline on Saturday read, while Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, top executives pushed woke programs. So my question for you, is there any truth to this? Did wokeness cause the bank failures? Uh, the short answer is hell no. <laughs> Actually, what it really speaks to is the fact that the culture war stuff, one of the reasons the Republicans emphasize it so much is when the uh, discussion turns to the economy, they know that they'll get clobbered. That's why they backed off saying uh, Social Security and Medicare will be on the table if they if they uh as, as a requirement for them to approve the uh, extension of the debt limit. They really know they can't win economic arguments. And so, you know, that, le and since they can't even uh, unify around uh, opposing Putin, uh, the one, you know, the one thing they can all safely say is it's all the fault of wokeness, whatever the it that's the fault of wokeness may be. Our reporter on wokeness, Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Do masks work to help stop the spread of COVID? A New York Times columnist recently said they don't, and he cited an authoritative review of research as his source. But it turns out he was wrong. And that plays into the hands of Republicans who've been campaigning against mask mandates as an infringement on personal freedom. For an explanation of the research and what it means, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. 
Thanks, John. A respected scientific nonprofit called Cochrane did a review of all the available research, and that's what everybody is looking at now. They reported that their review left them, quote, uncertain about whether wearing masks helps slow the spread of respiratory viruses. But it turns out that they were uncertain, not because of the masks, but because of problems with the research. The gold standard for research, of course, is the randomized double-blind experiment. When two groups of people are compared, one group has been given the experimental drug or procedure, the other has been given a placebo, nobody knows which group they're in. You can do that with drugs. Can you do a randomized double-blind experiment with masks? You can do it. If you have a mask on, you know you have a mask on. The, the issue with the Cochrane study is that Cochrane generally uses randomized controlled trials to make their assessments. There weren't that many studies done of masking in the context of COVID for them to rely on. They said they reviewed 78 studies, which sounds like a lot, but they said only 10 focused on what happens when people wear masks versus people who don't. And only two of those were specifically about masking and COVID. The rest were done before COVID. Uh, so it's not 78 studies of masks and COVID. It's only two. Yeah. The main point is that Brett Stevens, who we've been sort of discussing without naming him, wrote a piece in the New York Times saying masks don't work, mask mandates are useless, and everybody who's supported masking as a public policy should be ashamed of themselves and apologize to me and everybody else. He went so out far in front of his skis, claimed with certainty that you know masks don't work or mask mandates don't work, um, that the Cochrane collaboration, the Cochrane Library had to issue a, a, a corrective a couple of days ago saying, hey, some people are using our systematic review to say that masks don't work. It's not the case. What we said is that because of the lack of primary evidence, we can't make a, a determination about the effectiveness of masking in the context of respiratory infections. Zainab Tufeki, who is a columnist at the New York Times, and more importantly, is actually a, a working social scientist, a sociologist, decided to do a deep dive into the data. She read all the studies that were covered in the Cochrane Review, but she also sort of broadened out her lens to look at non-randomized studies of masking to see what she could find. So let's take a look at these one, one at a time. Two of your Yale colleagues did a big study where they distributed masks in villages in Bangladesh and compared COVID infection rates there with other villages where masks were not distributed. That study involved more than 340,000 people in 600 villages. They found that masks significantly reduced COVID infections, especially among older people, 35% lower among people over 60. That study was a lot better designed than many others. For example, a study of Hajj pilgrims to Mecca, where pilgrims sleep together in tents of 50 to 100 people. One group was given masks and told to wear them. The other wasn't. The research found, quote, little difference between the groups, close quote, in the rates of infection. But what do we know about that study? Well, one, this, that was not a COVID study. That was a respiratory, a respiratory study. It was looking at three consecutive COD seasons, 2013, 2014, 2015. So it was in, in the pre-pandemic period, right? And one of the biggest problem was, Turned out only a quarter of the people assigned to wear masks did it, and they didn't do it all the time. And even more problematic, of the group that was not wearing masks, it turns out 14% of them wore masks anyway. 
So if this was your research, what would you conclude about the effectiveness of masking? If you, if you actually look at the results of the study, the, the author said we can't really provide conclusive evidence about face mask efficacy against viral respiratory infections, mostly due to poor adherence to the protocol. I mean, this is, this is the other piece of the, the discussion that you need to have is that, you know, trying to do studies of policies like this um, is exceedingly difficult. That's why the Bangladeshi study, which did find a, an impact on COVID and when, when masks were, were, were um, made available to people in different Bangladeshi villages compared to others, that's why that one is, is, is so remarkable because it was able to show a, a, a benefit from masking in that context. Right after our, our friend Brett Stevens said there's no, there's no benefit to community masking, well, he'd have to talk to my Yale colleagues about um, the veracity of that statement. In the other of the two studies, college students were asked to wear masks for at least six hours a day while in their dormitories, but they were not obligated to wear them elsewhere. And then the second group was not asked to wear masks. Researchers found no difference in the infection rates between those who wore masks and those who did not. Six hours a day in dormitories, is that a good test of the effectiveness of masking in the COVID era? Seems to me we you need six hour, more than six hours a day and in places where there are many people. Yeah, I mean, you know, they also go to classes, they socialize and, and go to parties. And so that goes back to the point I made earlier that it's very, very difficult to do these studies in, in real world settings. These two studies you mentioned, the Hodge and the college students, are pre-pandemic studies, shows how, how difficult it is to get a reading on what, what works. But this underscores what the, the the Cochrane Library said this week is that you know because of the difficulties and and problems with the primary the primary data it's hard to make any conclusions. Now when we move to the the, the pandemic era studies, uh, we you know particularly the, the the Bangladeshi study we get a little bit more of a signal about how masks might be working in the context of the COVID pandemic. And of course, randomized trials are not the only way to measure the effectiveness of masks. We have uh, what they what we call observational studies. Japan, which emphasized wearing masks for the COVID epidemic, had a remarkably low death rate, especially in 2020 at the beginning, even though it did not have any shutdowns. How significant is that? Let's go back to basics. Whether it's a randomized study or an observational study, there are ways in which to design them to get answers or, or, or clues about the effectiveness of masking. You know, from the pandemic era, the Bangladeshi trial is probably the most important one because um, it was a randomized control study. But as you said, there's observational studies in Japan um, among healthcare workers in the U.S. I think there's one at Mass General Hospital that she, she had looked at. There are um, studies from Germany about mass mandates being introduced in different regions of the country in the in the spring of 2020. And and comparisons between American states, which had mandates and which didn't, which found significantly higher death rates from COVID in states that did not have mask mandates. Yeah. The point of Zainab's article in New York Times, which actually is 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 something your reader should go through and look at, is that she really goes through the, the Cochrane Review. I think what Zainab is very careful to say is that, you know, we, we fight a lot about masks and they're neither a panacea for, for, for the pandemic, nor uh, something that we can sort of toss behind us uh, as we, we look at the epidemic in the, in the rearview mirror. They have a place uh, used properly in, in the right place in the right time. They can be important to keeping you safe and keeping your neighbors and your community safe. You know, whether we've ever had enough coverage 
or adherence to mask wearing to, to bring down community level viral load, that's a whole other story. But we, we see in, in, in health settings and other places where, the, where masks have been used, as Zainab describes, it, it's been important in, in blocking transmission. And it, 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 it just makes common sense, too. The Republicans see mask wearing as an individual choice. If I wear a mask, will it protect me from COVID? But people concerned with public health look at mask wearing differently. Well, people in public health look at it in, in many different ways. One is I'm immunocompromised or like my elderly mother who's 89 years old, is going to go out in public to go to the grocery store. Wearing a mask can protect her um, from, from transmission. Having other people around her wearing masks makes it even better. That's the point. It's that it's not just a question of, of you protecting yourself. It's about what you do for your communities. And public health is about the population, right? But, you know, we do lots of things in our lives um, in which we we think nothing of it uh, in terms of, of protecting the public health. It used to be legal to spit in public. You used to not have to wear seatbelts. There's, there's lots of things we do in, in the context of our, our daily lives. Before the pandemic, you know, all of us got jabbed to, to go to elementary school, to kindergarten, all the way up to college and grad school with vaccine preventable diseases. It never really was a question about the common good until un, until most recently, in which sort of basic community good, basically taking care of your neighbors, became sort of a dirty word or a dirty, dirty phrase in the context of American politics. Yeah. Well, the main target of the Republican political tax, attacks about masking since the pandemic began has been Dr. Fauci, Tony Fauci. He's the focus of a wonderful new documentary that will play on PBS American Masters next Tuesday, March 21st. Fauci, of course, has been director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. The filmmakers for PBS got to follow him around everywhere and spend a lot of time talking to him in his kitchen. Trump made attacking Dr. Fauci a pillar of his reelection campaign in 2020, and he always focused on one thing that Fauci said, this is quoting Trump, Fauci said, don't wear masks. Now, Trump said he wants people to wear masks, close quote. In other words, Fauci kept changing his mind. And the PBS American Masters doc shows Fauci saying on TV, you don't need to wear a mask. This was in March 2020, at the very beginning, just the first month of the shutdown. What's the true story here? Well, first of all, when the facts change, we change your opinions. That's what separates sort of ideology from science, right? Yeah. Um, should Dr. Fauci have said, don't wear masks in 2020? Yeah. In March, in March 2020. March 2020, he shouldn't have said that. I mean, what I do remember back then is that um, many people were saying, in the healthcare setting, we're saying we don't have PPE, we don't have personal protective equipment, we don't have masks, we don't have gloves, we don't have gowns. Um, and you know, there were there were lots of doctors and public health professionals organizing to figure out how to get these tools to people on the front lines in the healthcare setting. So I think some of that is probably at issue in terms of Dr. Fauci's prescription to say don't wear masks in March 2020 because we need to to save them for the healthcare setting. That being said, I don't want to let President Trump off the hook, but I also don't want to let Democrats off the hook. Masking hasn't been sort of um, much of a, a priority for the Biden administration either. Um, so um, while President Trump can go after Dr. Fauci for his comments in March 2020, um, we could easily go after President Biden for his comments uh, in, in March 2022. This American Masters documentary shows protesters holding signs that say, trust God, not Fauci. 
Another person holds a sign showing a vaccination needle with the line underneath it, come and make me. And of course, the big sign that we saw lots of places, Fauci lied, people died. In other words, the vaccines killed people, not COVID. And on this documentary, they play a tape of a phone call where a woman says, we're going to find Fauci, we're going to rip his head off, and we're going to shit down his neck, close quote. Uh, that's on the PBS American Masters documentary next Tuesday. I wonder if you have any comment on, on just the level of vitriol and threats to Fauci himself. Well, a couple of things. One is, you know, I'm from the ACT UP generation, and we used to scream at Tony Fauci 30 years ago. The point is, is that we had a larger purpose in public health. The federal government was not responding to the AIDS crisis, and we wanted them to do more. To Dr. Fauci's credit, he came around and sort of brought the activists into the fold um, to work with the NIH and, and partner with us, even as we criticized all along. What we're seeing now is, is really an orchestrated campaign of hate um, to target a man who's devoted his life to public service and, yes, has made mistakes uh, along the way. But this isn't a good faith sort of attempt to sort of figure out the best way to prevent sort of CoV-2 transmission in our communities to help the people who are at risk, to help the people who are suffering. It's really an orchestrated political campaign to, to target uh, one man as a symbol of the science and public health establishment and really undermine our pandemic preparedness, not just for COVID-19, but for all that comes afterwards. The anti-vax rhetoric, the anti-mask rhetoric, the give me liberty or give me death rhetoric really is going to put us um, really... Um, in a, a terrible situation should we see a new pandemic emerge over the next few years, um, one that, that, that might even have a higher fatality rate than, than the, current, the current virus. And I should just add that there's a scene in the PBS Fauci documentary where you uh, are talking with Fauci in his living room with two of your uh, colleagues, reminding him about the old days when you were on opposite sides of the AIDS battle. And uh, it's a great scene, if I may say so. I wonder if you have any closing thoughts about where we stand now, March 2023, on masks and COVID. You said masks are not a panacea. The state and federal mandates are ending. What's the significance now of masking? Over the time we've talked over the past few months, we've had 400 to 500 deaths per day in the United States from COVID-19. You know, it is still a serious public health issue. It's one of the leading causes of death. Masks are a, a part of keeping each other safe and keeping ourselves safe. The fact that the United States has decided to make this uh, an ideological project um, rather than a public health one is, is a problem. The point is, is that we're not out of the pandemic yet. You do not want to get COVID. And so if you're in public settings with lots of people whose vaccination status you don't know, for instance, you know, wearing a, a, a well-fitting mask is, and a, a proper mask is important. When we're down to 10, 20 deaths per day, you know, maybe we can talk about the need to sort of forget all the pandemic mitigation strategies that we've been talking about over the past three years. But we are still in the midst of a terrible pandemic, creating a lot of havoc in, in, in human lives across the country and masking. It's not a panacea, but it is one part of the solution. It's not just vaccines. It's not just masks. It's indoor ventilation. It's making sure that people have access to the tools they need to keep themselves and their families safe. Greg Gonsalves, 
You can read his reports on the pandemic and public health at thenation.com, and you can see him in the wonderful documentary about Dr. Fauci on PBS American Masters on Tuesday, March 21st. Greg, thanks for talking with us today. As always, John, thanks so much. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk about bank failures and bank regulation. Since the collapse last week of the Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the country, and the second medium-sized bank, Signature Bank, and the new widespread anxiety about the safety of all regional banks, we need to understand how and why these banks have been allowed to avoid strict supervision from federal banking authorities and not meet the safety requirements they had previously been required to meet. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and he's co-author of the book with the wonderful title, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. His co-author is Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. And if there's a week that'll make people angry about capitalism, this is probably <laughs> it. This is it. Well, Congress passed new bank regulations in 2018. That was a point at which, of course, Republicans controlled Congress. Trump signed their bill. The vote in favor of banking deregulation, you report in The Nation magazine. In the Senate, all 50 Republicans plus 17 Democrats. In the House, all 225 Republicans plus 33 Democrats. But tell us about the people in Congress who did not vote to deregulate banking in 2018. Oh, John, you're going to be really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Names you probably have never thought about. Uh, Bernie Sanders, okay. Elizabeth Warren, uh -huh. uh, Katie Porter, who wasn't in Congress yet, but was a law professor, you know, yelling from the sidelines saying, this isn't a good idea. This isn't going to work. In fact, it was one of the things, uh, one of the many issues that inspired Katie Porter to run for Congress. The interesting thing about what happened in 2018 and why we should focus on it is that people absolutely knew the danger. It wasn't, it wasn't some unexpected thing or some totally unpredictable thing. Who could have seen it coming? No, it was the opposite. There were clear, strong voices saying, do not deregulate the banks, especially these regional banks, or there's going to be trouble. And there's just a little bit of backstory that people should have. And that is that Dodd-Frank, the uh, bill that was passed after the global economic meltdown of 2008, which was driven by banks and financial institutions, was a modest reform. It did some of the basic stuff that needed to be done, but it wasn't a radical reform, and it wasn't sort of like an airtight reform. And the lobbyists for the big banks and for the medium-sized banks recognized that very quickly. And so they started hiring up uh, Republicans and Democrats, flooding Capitol Hill with lobbyists, and over a number of years, pressuring for a weakening of Dodd-Frank. The big weakening came with this 2018 bill, positioned as a banking reform bill, backed by the Republicans, as you said, but also backed by a number of what can best be described as corporate Democrats. 
Democrats from states with a lot of big banks. So you ended up with a situation where it was very easily passed, very quickly signed by Donald Trump, and then kind of forgotten. And the only people that had, you know, like kind of real responsibility or some responsibility here were the folks over at the Fed. And then you got Jerome Powell over at the Fed. If there was an enforcement mechanism at the Fed, it was kind of a looser one than what the law suggested. So a lot of vulnerabilities were created. A lot of, you know, openings were there. And we got the result that Bernie Sanders predicted on the floor of the House or floor of the Senate. I apologize. He literally read the CBO report saying this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. Mm. We got exactly what Elizabeth Warren said. She went literally to the floor of the Senate and said, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. And now we're there. This fascinating story in the Tuesday New York Times about the second bank that failed, Signature Bank. The CEO of Signature Bank, along with the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, were among the many people who testified before Congress in 2018 saying that the requirements of Dodd-Frank should be reduced. One of the people who was lobbying Congress to reduce the requirements of the 2008 bill was former Congressman Barney Frank, the lead co-author of the, that's why it's called Dodd-Frank. It was his greatest achievement. But he retired in 2013 and went to work as a member of the board of Signature Bank and repeatedly argued for changing one key plank of his own bill, the requirement that set the threshold for greater federal regulation at $50 billion. Banks with more than $50 billion had to face greater federal supervision, stricter stress tests, more requirements to meet liquidity in case of a run on the bank like this one. And one of the key things that the Trump Republicans did was they did raise the threshold from $50 billion to $250 billion. And that meant that scores of big banks would escape the stress tests and the requirements for liquidity. And one of the beneficiaries was Signature Bank. They grew from $47 billion to more than $100 billion. They collapsed over the weekend, were taken over by the FDIC, and Barney Frank was dismissed from the board along with the rest of the board uh, when he was a, a director of Signature Bank after he retired from the House, the New York Times reports. He was paid $2.4 million in cash and stock. Can we say Barney Frank sold out to the banks? I think that Barney Frank will not be remembered well for his involvement with the banks. I hate to tell you that if you start digging very deep, you're going to find a lot of former Democratic members of Congress who did the same thing, and uh, even more former Republican members of Congress. So you end up with this situation where the bankers know exactly how to play this game. They hire the people who have trusted names. They yeah. give them enough money to go lobby. I grew up in Union Grove, Wisconsin, a small town. I still live in Wisconsin. I know what a community bank is. Community banks don't have $50 billion in assets. <laughs> That's for sure. So even the $50 billion figure was an absurd figure, right? That was too high. That's one of the reasons why I say that Dodd-Frank was a modest reform, not a radical reform. Yeah. Um, but when you raised it to $250 billion, now, you know, I'm not that good with math, but I believe that's a quarter of a trillion dollars. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about that kind of money, that's not a bank that should be given an easy hand, given a nod and a wink. And so 
The argument that was put forward in 2018 was a terrible argument. If Congress should have, would have gone anyway, the smart way to have gone would have been to lower the threshold, take it down to 25, well, take it down to a billion. So one of the arguments for loosening the rules was that that would allow banks to be more innovative and yeah. to serve communities that, that might not otherwise be served. You know, again, it's sort of the old community banking argument. But what did these, what did these banks do? Well, in Signature's case, they were, at least to some extent, serving the crypto community. Yeah. And in, uh, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they were serving you know, some of the biggest tech companies in the world. And these weren't companies that were dealing in, you know, like, oh, I got to take the checks down to the bank on Friday <laughs> afternoon. Right. You know, this was, these are companies that are dealing themselves in many, many billions of dollars. And so this created an incredible vulnerability. And even now, with the crisis and with the intervention of FDIC, the response to that vulnerability is not a smart one and not a healthy one. It's a, it's a dangerous one. We will get to the response in just a minute, but I want to, there's one fascinating note about Silicon Valley Bank and its difference from Signature. Signature, as you said, specialized in crypto and taxi medallions, two of the most corrupt and dubious investments anybody could make. Silicon Valley Bank was kind of the opposite. They told Congress yeah. that they, you know, they need more freedom to fund good guy environmental startups. But those companies raised most of their money, apparently, from venture capital. As you say, mostly what Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, did was they were the deposit bank for these That's huge right. tech companies, and they played it safe with the billions that they took in. They did not invest in risky you know, securities, but basically they bought extre boring, extremely safe assets, mostly long-term federal bonds issued by the United States government, government-backed agencies. And they said these were low-risk investments that didn't require regulation. But there was a risk. It's called interest yeah. rate risk. When the interest rates went up because the Fed wanted to fight inflation, the value of mm -hmm. their assets went down and their big depositors noticed the bank's assets are falling. And this caused a classic run on the bank. Now, interest rate risk is really Econ 101. There's oh, nothing, yeah. nothing obscure or complicated about it, but I guess that requires federal regulators to set limits and engage in oversight, just the same as we want regulation of crypto and, you know, taxi medallions. Yeah. You know, if you're seeing patterns of, of banks investing in these bonds, didn't someone recognize there might be a problem there? <laughs> yeah. Clearly, we had people asleep at the switch. So... We are told now by Biden that all the losses of these banks will be covered, uh, that this is not really going to be a bailout because the taxpayers are not going to pay for it. Other banks will be assessed to, to pay for these losses and that that will solve the problem and, and, and the system will be re-established. Re is covering the losses of these banks the, really the solution that we need here? Well, first off, I'm a little uncomfortable with redefining a bailout as a backstop. Yeah. Right? Because that's, that's the term they've come up with. And, and, you know, we're hearing other people say, oh, we got to claw back some of the money that the executives of Silicon Valley Bank got when they sold stock, right? You know, almost in the cusp of, of this collapse. 
What you have to understand here is that the federal government has made a commitment here, and it's a big commitment. The signal that comes from this is now that that old rule that we've always had, that FDIC deposits are insured up to you know, a reasonable amount, but not, you know, not into the millions or billions, if that rule no longer applies and that you know, you know as, a, as a big tech company or you know, any kind of corporation that your, your deposits are going to be insured at any level that you get them, then it's effectively we've created a new guarantee that hasn't been debated and hasn't been discussed. It's, it's a, a radical shift in how the FDIC works, and it's one that um, will have profound impacts on how big companies you know, look at their money, how banks operate, et cetera. Uh, and I'm not sure that's one that we necessarily, as a society and as a country, as a government, uh, want to embrace because it's a massive, massive expansion of FDIC's role at a time when Elizabeth Warren and others say that really what we should be doing is looking for ways to reform the FDIC so it serves its, its original and, and very good purpose, which was to make sure that, again, you know, a person who owns a grocery store on the corner uh, can make their deposits and have their money in a bank and know that they're, that they're protected even if the bank runs into trouble. This is making the FDIC into something very, very different and it ought not be done casually. We've only got a couple minutes left here, but we would appreciate an update on the single most important election before the 2024 presidential race. Of course, that's the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court election, which is going to happen on April 4th. It could end a conservative control of the state Supreme Court. This is a court that has blocked abortion rights and approved draconian gerrymandering. The candidate supported by the Democrats is Janet Protasewicz. She's the candidate of abortion rights and voting rights. Uh, the candidate supported by Republicans is Daniel Kelly. He's a former Supreme Court justice. How are things going in this race right now? Well, I think it has become a nationalized race because yeah. hosts of national podcasts can pronounce Protasewicz. <laughs> okay. Um, I practiced. Which, uh, I practiced. Well, it's great. You did it very well. And, you. and you know, in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, that is not an unheard of name and it, uh, <laughs> where we have a very large Polish-American community and a lot of Eastern European ethnic communities. That, that is a measure of how nationalized this race has become, that people know the names of both candidates, know their records, and there's a, a lot of engagement. Why? Well, it's because if this court uh, does flip to a 4-3 liberal majority, it's very likely to take on a case involving Wisconsin's 1849 abortion law. It could become one of the most consequential uh, court deliberations on the issue of abortion rights. It is very possibly going to take up labor rights issues that might upend uh, Scott Walker's anti-labor agenda from the 2010s, uh, but could be a major, major uh, shift as regards labor rights uh, in Wisconsin and a signal to other states. And finally, it's got that gerrymandering issue where if they upend the uh, heavily gerrymandered maps, you could see a situation where Wisconsin's legislature could uh, go even in fair elections to Democratic control and Democrats could pick up a couple of seats in the House, uh, U.S. House. So that's a pretty big deal. It's why it's everybody's focused on it. Uh, the money is pouring in. It's a lot of special interest money. There's money on both sides. Let's be clear about that. Uh, but the 
indications are, and we haven't had a lot of polling on this, that the progressive candidate, Janet Protosewitz, seems to be in a stronger position. Now, that's not guaranteed that it will hold through April 4th when the election is, but Protosewitz clearly has um, a very strong campaign going on. She's getting a lot of endorsements, uh, and she also is working really, really hard. And one of the keys is that if you're running, you've got to run in the whole state and build out a, a real campaign. And uh, as somebody who's watched a lot of campaigns in Wisconsin over the years, I can tell you that it's a lot of indications that Janet Protosewitz's campaign uh, is one of the strongest, maybe the strongest judicial campaign I've, I've seen in all my years covering the state. So, I, again, I'm very cautious. I wouldn't say there's any guarantees there and these races get ugly and, and mean at the end. Uh, but at this point, it does look like there's a real chance that that seat could flip. John Nichols, his new book is It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, written with Bernie Sanders. You can read his reporting and commentary on politics at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. It's an honor to be with you, John. Thanks so much. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music